Good morning, Emmanuel family. Welcome to worship today. Welcome if you're online campus. Harvard University did a longevity study over 80 years to try to figure out what was the greatest predictor of a joy-filled, satisfied, fulfilled life. What they discovered was it is not your genes, it's not low cholesterol, (laughs) it's not a healthy diet. The greatest predictor of a fulfilling, satisfying life is how satisfied are you with your friendships? Friendships will determine the quality of your life. And that's what this series is about. We started last week with how Jesus is the best friend you'll ever have. And for the next four weeks, as we talk about friendship, basically these next four weeks are how to be a friend like Jesus was and is to you. So let's begin with what is a friend. A friend is a person you know who you like and trust. How do you make friends? For those of you who are type A personalities that want to make every moment productive in your life, this is not good news for you because Research shows the number one way to make friends is wasting time together with no agenda. Bless me, oh Lord. No, it's just spending time together. Everybody knows this. Remember when you were a kid, you're just hanging out? Right? You're eight, nine, ten years old, you're laying down on the grass, your friend's next to you, you're staring up into the sky. You're wasting hours together. And in those hours that you're wasting together, life just comes out. And you talk about things you normally wouldn't talk about. Some of us are into speed friendship, like speed dating. We we just sit down for a lunch and we we just try to all get it out and we have an agenda of the five things we want to talk about. That's not how friendships are created. Friendships are created by wasting time together with no real agenda. What are the levels of friendship? There are four. There's the acquaintance level. Then there's the casual level. Then there's the close level. And then there's the intimate level. Now, you may notice that there's a a triangle upside down. That was my attempt at a funnel, okay? But picture up at the top are acquaintances, and that's the highest, widest place in the funnel. It's your Facebook friends, all 1,039 of them. You cannot be close friends with 1,039 people. But they're your acquaintances. You know them at some point in your life, right? And then you move to casual friends. Casual friends, you probably have 100, 150 casual friends, right? And then you move to close friends. Close friends are like, you know, 10, 12, 14 people. And then you have your intimate friends, which are really like two or three or four people. And here's what happens is if you work your way down the funnel, 
The bottom line is you have to spend more time to create that intimate, deeper relationship, and you're moving from facts of your life to feelings in your life. You're moving from the details of your life to the dreams of your life. The conversations as you work your way down the levels, they get deeper and more meaningful. Now, this morning I want to talk about what healthy friendships look like. How can you be the kind of person that is a healthy friend to somebody else and how you attract healthy friendships? This is part one. Part two of this message is next week, what unhealthy friendships look like and what do I do about it? The Bible is full of many unhealthy friendships. And the Bible is also full of many healthy friendships. So this morning I want to take a look at three dimensions, three types of specific friendships that you and I can cultivate to be healthy. You and I will experience each of these friendships, maybe all at the same time, but certainly throughout the course of our lives, we will have all of these three types of friendships. The first is your average friendship peer-to-peer. The second is the mentor-protege friendship. And the third is the support friendship. People who you support, people who support you. So let's go ahead and begin. We're going to take a, take a look at three dimensions of friendship. The first is the peer-to-peer, and this is David and Goliath. Stop it, Mark. David and Jonathan. Okay? David and Jonathan. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe, giving it to David, together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Thirty years ago, I didn't need to say what I'm about to say. Some people have taken this passage of Scripture to mean that David and, John, David and Jonathan had a different type of relationship. You know what I'm talking about. There is nothing in the Hebrew text at all that identifies anything other than a strong platonic, manly relationship. Remember I talked last week about in the ancient world there was always two marks of friendship. The first mark was to, you know, love each other with a sacrificial love. And the second was frank talk. This is the kind of love that Jonathan and David had that intimate, close bond between men that is often missing today because men, I think, 
I think, more than women, I think men have a hard time letting other people into our lives for whatever reason. After David killed, John, uh, after David killed Goliath, he immediately rose to national prominence as a warrior and a hero. And David became part of Saul's intimate circle. And Saul even invited him to be part of his own family system. Now, at first, you may think that that's a really wonderful thing of Saul to do that. Wow, Saul's a great guy. I mean, he lets, he lets David to become part of his family. But as we'll see later, Saul had other motives for wanting David to be close to him. Have you ever heard this phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? Already, Saul is beginning to look at David as a rival to the throne. And he's saying, I got to keep a close eye on this boy. And what, what does the text say? He wouldn't let him return home. It's a gentle velvet glove of control. When David left Saul's presence that day, he ran into Jonathan, and there was an immediate bond, and their friendship grew quickly. And as their friendship deepened, Jonathan recognized the Lord's hand was on David in an unusual way. Sadly, he also knew that God's hand had been lifted from his father. Now, there's a whole story behind this, but it's found in 1 Samuel 15, where Saul, after so many times of disobedience, finally the Lord says, I can't trust you anymore to be the king because you can't follow me with any kind of consistency. And so he said to Samuel, the prophet, come on, we've got to do something different here. And then Saul began to diminish in his influence. In Jonathan knew that it was just a matter of time before Saul would lose his throne. Now, if you follow the complete storyline from, you know, 1 Samuel 18 and, and, and the several chapters after that, you'll discover that there are three universal characteristics of healthy friendships that David and Jonathan modeled, and here they are. If you, now, now, what we ought to be doing right now is we ought to be saying to ourselves, number one, am I the kind of person that models these three universal principles? And am I the kind of person that attracts these three universal principles? Here they are. In healthy friendships, they go like this. I want what's best for my friends and I'm willing to do whatever the necessary sacrifices are for them to get it. Jonathan became a champion in David's life and was willing to make sacrifices for him to succeed. Which raises two questions about healthy friendships. The first is, do I bring out the best in my friends or the worst? Do I bring out the best in my friends? Am I the kind of friend where I build my friends up? I become their champions. Life has a way of beating you down. You don't need people in your life that are assisting in that. 
You want people in your life where you can count on to build you up, to help you fulfill your dreams. Second question, what sacrifices are you making to help your friends? This explains why Jonathan gave David his robe, his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. That seems a little odd. Basically, Jonathan just strips down. I mean, who does that? You know, he's got his skivvies on. Don't worry about it. It's not weird, right? But, but I mean, he's got his robe on. And you know what a tunic is? A tunic is this kind of like in ancient days, you can even look at it, you know, like with Roman soldiers, a tunic was kind of like a skirt, you know, that you wear it around you. You know what I mean? Think of a kilt. And so Jonathan just takes off his robe, he takes off his tunic, and he hands him his bow, his belt, and his sword. Uh, what's that about? Listen, Jonathan realized that God's hand was on David in an unusual way and that God was using David to advance God's agenda in Israel and there's something, there's a seed already taking place inside of Jonathan that says, I, I actually think he could become king. Now this is huge because Jonathan is heir to the throne. You, you got it, right? I mean, Saul the dad, it's natural for Saul to turn to Jonathan and go, you're up next. But even in this moment, Jonathan is realizing something's different about David. And if I have to sacrifice my right to the throne in order to pursue God's agenda and for Israel to prosper, I'm willing to do it. I don't know. You may not have to make those kind of sacrifices in your friendships, but here's what I do know. Today, 21st century, you know what makes healthy friendships? Your willingness to inconvenience yourself for somebody else. Instead of moaning and groaning because you have to go to the store because your friend is sick and you got to pick up and do groceries for them or whatever, you just you embrace it and you say, this is, this is one of the things that healthy friendships do. We, we make sacrifices and we purposely inconvenience ourselves because the friendship is so meaningful to me. Okay, first quality, first universal principle of healthy friendships is I want what's best for my friends and I'm willing to make the necessary sacrifices for them to get it. Number two, being open-hearted. Notice the pact that they made with each other. The pact was to be a lifelong friendship and the pact was to take care of each other, and listen to this, to take care of their families as well. Jonathan didn't have to do that. He was heir to the throne. He swings in the big circles. David is an up-and-comer sheep herder from an obscure family in a little backwards place called Bethlehem. Healthy friendships are open-hearted, big, generous magnanimous it's romans 12 9 and 10 don't just pretend to love others really love them hate what is wrong hold tightly to what is good love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other third universal principle of a healthy friendship is being loyal and dependable. Years later, Saul decided he was going to kill David. 
and he creates this plot to kill him. And as soon as Jonathan finds out that his daddy wants to kill his best friend, he has a decision to make. Is he going to align himself with daddy? Or is he going to betray daddy to save his best friend? In a heartbeat, Jonathan ran to David and said, my dad has it out for you and run, get out of here. And Jonathan saved his life. Jonathan had David's back. Now, fast forward the storyline several years later, decades later. Saul and Jonathan are dead. They were killed in battle. David is now the king. He's gotten everything that Jonathan thought that he should get, although Jonathan's not around to see it. One day, David is sitting in his throne room, and he says to an advisor, is there anybody from Jonathan's family I can bless? And the advisor says, oh, king, there is one. Son, uh, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. I don't know if mom loved him to name him that way. I'm just saying. That's his name, Mephibosheth, right? Who, who does that? Right? You want to ruin your kids? Name him Mephibosheth. I can't even say it three times, right? There's a backstory behind Mephibosheth. Chaos is breaking out in the kingdom. There's all kinds of craziness going on. And Mephibosheth, as a little boy, is picked up by his nurse to run from the home to save his life. She drops him. And he becomes crippled for life. He can't walk. And he's lost everything when David became king. And he's living in some backwards place. And David says, I made a vow decades before to my friend Jonathan. And though Jonathan is no longer around, I'm looking for anybody in his family that I can bless. And so he calls Mephibosheth to him. And you can see Mephibosheth now as a middle-aged man, just... And he says, come live with me. I live with your dad and your grandfather in a dysfunctional home. Let me show what a functional home looks like. You spend the rest of your life sitting at my table, eating my food. And oh, by the way, I will restore all of your inheritance to you. That was a dangerous thing for David to do. You know why? Because if anything ever happened to David... Mephibosheth had a claim to the throne. It could steal it back from David. And yet David is open-hearted. He, he's magnanimous. He, he's, he's loyal. He's dependable. And he's saying, I made a pact 30 years ago to my friend, and nothing's going to stop me from fulfilling it. Three universal principles to a healthy friendship. That's the peer-to-peer -peer relationship. The second relationship is the mentor-protege relationship. This is Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. 
2 Kings chapter 2. Just before God took Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on a walk out to Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, now you stay here. God has sent me on an errand to Bethel. Elisha said, not on your life. I'm not letting you out of my sight. I mean, you're stuck with me, man. That's the way it is. And so they went on to Bethel. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament times. But as he got older, God revealed to him, hey, Elijah, I'm going to take you home. And you've got to get a protege. And his name is Elisha. And Elisha is going to take over your role as prophet in Israel. Now, it wasn't an instant friendship like David and Jonathan. But it was an intentional friendship. And it grew over time. And as we see in these scripture verses here, eventually Elijah and Elisha became inseparable. Throughout the course of their life, throughout the course of your life, you will constantly need to ask two questions. Who is pouring into me and who am I pouring into? You know the difference between mentoring and coaching? Coaching draws it out. Mentoring pours it in. Throughout the course of your life, you're going to have friends that are pouring into you. They have knowledge. They have resources. They have wisdom that you need. And because they're open-hearted, because they're kind and magnanimous, they're just like, if you're ready for it, man, I'll pour my life into you. So you need to ask yourself this question, who's pouring their lives into you? There's a whole backstory of research behind mentoring. And the bottom line to mentoring is this, you need 50 to 65 mentors in your life, upward, downward, and peer mentors in order to finish well. 65, most of us are like, I think I have two, maybe three, 65, it's true. Elijah poured all that he knew, all that he had into Elisha. But now you have to flip it around and ask yourself the question, who are you pouring yourself into? Because you're not here because of your greatness. You're here because other people poured themselves into you. So who are you pouring yourself into? It's the Titus chapter 2 principle. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. These older women must train the younger women. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. I, I like that passage of scripture because it really demystifies what mentoring is all about. You have Titus, who's probably by this time middle-aged. Back in the ancient world, middle-aged was like 30. Because <laughs> people died, like in their 50s. 
You know what I'm saying? So you've got Titus, who the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to teach the older men. So, so Titus is reaching up to older men, mentoring them. Pouring his life into them so that they could learn to live godly, wise lives. And then Titus is supposed to teach the older women how to live in a godly way so that the older women can teach the younger women. The younger women can teach the still younger women. And that's how mentoring works. You just kind of work your way down. And then Paul says to Titus, and oh, by the way, I want you to teach the younger men how to live wisely. You see it all. You see the upward, the downward, the peer, all of it. So who are you pouring yourself into? I mean, it could be your kids. It could be your spouse, right? My grandkids are pouring themselves into me. I just hand over all my technology. And I just go, here. Oh, Pop-Pop, you're so funny. And they hand it back to me like three minutes later. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be older to younger. It can be. But there's all kinds of mentoring. Who, what do you have to give? Most people say, oh, I don't have much to give. Yes, you do. If you've been a Christian a week, you can mentor somebody who's been a Christian a day because you know more than they know. The third dimension of friendship is one of mutual support. So you've got the peer-to-peer, the David and Jonathan, right? You've got the Elijah to Elisha, and now you've got the support friendship. It seems to me that Ruth and Naomi are great examples of mutual support. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. You know, for all you romantics, you ought to read the book of Ruth at least once a year. It's a beautiful love story. There's a woman named Naomi who is married to a guy and there was a great famine in the land in Israel for several years and so Naomi and her husband decide they're going to move to a neighboring nation named Moab. The Moabites. And Naomi and her husband had two sons, and they lived in the land of Moab for a number of years, and these boys grew up to be men, and they married two Moabite women. Tragedy struck. Naomi's husband died. Unbelievably, her boys died. And she's left with nothing. Except two daughters-in-laws that she doesn't know what to do with because she can't support them. So Naomi decides that after a decade or more, of living in Moab, she's going to go back to Israel 
to her hometown, Bethlehem. And she's going to try to rebuild her life. They start off the journey, and I don't know why it didn't happen beforehand, but, but Naomi turns to her two daughters-in-laws as they're on their way and says to them, you got to go back home. Maybe she didn't say, I can't support you. Maybe you're more of a burden than, I mean, I'm just going to try to make it on my own. I don't even know what it looks like to make it and try to help you girls out. But you're Moabites and you're young enough, you can get remarried and you got your family system around you and you should just stay in Moab and I'll just go back by myself and try to rebuild whatever life I have. The one daughter-in-law says, yeah, that, that sounds right. And we should not fault her at all for doing that. It was the right thing for her to do. But Ruth says, nope, you're stuck with me. Where you go, I go. And I'm going with you. And so Naomi just kind of like, all right. And they go back to Bethlehem. Now, there's many beautiful things about the story of Ruth. But what you need to see is that fundamentally, it is the story of two wounded people by life. Tragedy has struck them. And their mutual support of each other is what got them through. That's what the story of Ruth is about. So they get back to Bethlehem, and the welfare system of that day was the harvesters would harvest the fields of grain, but they never collected everything, so all the poor people could come behind the harvesters, and they would pick up the leftover grain, and that would be enough to support and feed them and to pay their bills. So, you know, you're kind of harvesting like 60%. And you're keeping the 40% for all the poor people that are just coming behind you. And so Ruth decides, day one, they're home now. She decides, I'm going to go out to the field and I'm going to start to collect. And she comes home that night with this massive bag of grain. And Naomi's like, what happened to you? I mean, that's unbelievable how much grain you got. And she goes, you know, I harvested in this field. This guy's name was Boaz, and he treated me well. And Naomi goes, what? Boaz is my kinsman redeemer. He's a distant relative that if there was an alliance, he could make everything better, and he could get us out of poverty. So you know what the rest of Ruth is about? The rest of Ruth is about Naomi teaching Ruth how to make a move on Boaz. That's what it's about. It's really funny. Well, you know, Ruth, if you, you want to get in with Boaz, you, you have to lay at his feet at just the right time, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. What's going on here? It's a story about a broken woman with a daughter-in-law, and they're mutually helping each other out so that they can have a life. Throughout the course of your life, 
you and I are going to need support. It doesn't have to be as big as, you know, Naomi and Ruth, right? But throughout the course of your life, you're going to have friends that, you know, may be going through a challenging time. And for some of you, wow, for some of you, that may mean um, I'm giving my friend a car because I have an extra car. Or I'm paying your mortgage for two months, right? I mean, something huge. But for many of us, it's simply coming alongside another person and offering them support. It's an encouragement card. It's a note. It's just doing something kind. It's just loving well and supporting. And you may or may not know that that person needs support at the time. But remember, healthy friendships are just open-hearted, and they're open-hearted all the time. And you just may find yourself blessed by helping somebody and encouraging somebody that you didn't even know needed encouragement. Does that make sense? So <clears throat> every week, my wife Holly stands in the back as the service begins and says, who should I sit next to this week? And, you know, sometimes she just sits next to, like, you know, her regular friends, and then sometimes she sits next to visitors, you know. And, and some time ago, she sat next to somebody, and they just, you know, they're friends. They had a conversation, and, and Holly really didn't think, like, a whole lot about it other than just enjoyed being with this person. The next week, she received a note from this person, and it read this way. Last week, when I arrived at church, the thought popped into my mind, you're alone and you're late. Why don't you just go home and watch the service online? Then I said to myself, you enjoy the service so much more in person, just go sneak in the back. Thanks for sitting next to me last Sunday. Normally, it doesn't bother me, you know, to, to be alone, but I was feeling a bit down last week. Thanks so much for your kind words and how you allow Christ's love to shine through you. I would like to suggest to you that one of the best ways that you support your friends is just simply showing up. Just show up. Just be seen. Just be there. God will bless you by bringing people into your life who need your support at any given moment. And God will bless you by bringing people into your life just at the time you need it most. And most of the time, it'll just be simple acts of generosity, regular old stuff, but it'll make a difference in somebody else's life. So, healthy friendships. Do I bring out the best in my friends? In what ways am I sacrificing to help my friends? Who's pouring into me? Who am I pouring into? Who could benefit from a little bit of support from me? Let's pray.
Jesus, you're the best friend we're ever going to have. You love us unconditionally. You're open-hearted with us. You've made tremendous sacrifice in order to bridge the gap between us and God. And we love you for it. Lord, as we um, begin this journey about like how to be a friend and how to have friends, I feel like we're standing on holy ground because we're living in a cultural moment that is so divided. And one of the greatest acts of Christ-likeness could be simply showing up in acquaintances, casual, close, and our intimate friends to just show up and be there and to be fully present to represent you well. Help us this week to have eyes to see and ears to hear who we can pour into. Be open-hearted. Intentionally sacrifice. Support. And all God's people said, amen.